I feel like I'm dragging you away from some really important life moment, Mike. I'm sorry. No, John, being being with you is always more important than, than anything that's family-related or personal. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's what I tell my family, too. I'm like, you know, Mike Leonard's on. Sorry, I can't come over today. Can't hang out. Um, I, Mike, did, I did have a question for you, yeah. for, which the viewers the viewers have been asking me any, every time I see them throughout Chicago, because right. your, your reach is widespread. Thank you. Do you ever get to a situation where they someone hears your voice? Because you're on the radio a lot, not just on this show, but a lot of other shows. Mm-hmm. Someone hears you. You know, you're in the line getting your double, triple mocha with the spice pumpkin and all that, and they say that's John Hansen's voice. Does that happen to you? First of all, I, I don't, I don't, I make my own coffee. Okay, French press every day. You don't find me getting a triple mocha all that often. <laughs> Second of all, I didn't know you're so sensitive about your no, coffee, John. Well, I, I, I brought it up. I feel like you're trying to lump me in as like a millennial, right? I think you're trying to put me in as a, but I'm an old 38 millennial, so I think that, anyways. Uh, uh, every now and then, a, a cab driver or an Uber driver who listens to WGN will will recognize my voice. You know, I do some TV, and at the Jewels, every now and again, someone will recognize my face as well and and say hello. Um, but you know, I think the voice thing is hard to, for people to pick up. I mean, you're on this show so much, I bet people are stopping you left and right. John, it's like paparazzi. I mean, being on your show with its reach and its and its depth, it's like paparazzi. I've been stopped all the time. Yeah, uh, we will get to legal talk eventually, but uh, for now, it's just a vanity uh, project between me and Mike Leonard. <laughs> now, Mike is, uh, does great work with Leonard Trial Lawyers, uh, of course, a federal defense attorney, done whistleblower cases, um, and uh, you just kind of have a real insight into a lot of things in this world, and you're able to answer so many questions. In fact, the lines are already lighting up. 312-981-7200 if you want to chime in with a question for Mike Leonard. Uh, in fact, Mike, you ready to get a question off the bat? John, let's do it. Let's All right. Go to it. Let's go to Tina. Hey, Tina. Welcome to the program. Hi. How are you doing? I am doing great. It's a nice sunny day here in, in Chicago. Amen to that. Loving that. All right. You got a question for Mike? Yes, I do. I'm just wondering, um, you know, now that we're voting on Tuesday, whenever I get to the section that the judges, I'm just never quite sure how to select him. And if, if Mike could have it, have any guidance for how to choose the right judges to vote for. That's a great question, right? Because I even, I really voted on Friday and I host this program and knew there'd be judges on the que- on the thing, but I forgot to do the research on them. <laughs> exactly. I, then I, and, and they said no cell phones in the phoning booth, which I was surprised about. I thought you were allowed to do that. So I just kind of sat there, Mike, and didn't know what to do. So Mike, why don't you go ahead and answer Tina's question to the best of your ability? Yeah, I have a question for Tina just to start with. Tina, when you are, are in the... Bonnie Booth, do you, do you have any research or intelligence you've done up front before you go in, or do you go to any websites, anything like that, or is it just well, just based I'm upon that? Hard, I'm a diehard Democrat, so usually they'll send something and they'll just say vote for all the judges, but I don't know, you know, is that really the right thing to do? Should I be voting for people that I don't know anything about? That's a great point, Tina, because I think I'll even even no matter which party you are, die hard. I think that we should still do some of our own independent research. And I feel like Tina, that's what you're saying too. It's like even if you support one party over the other, every candidate deserves to be looked at, right? Exactly. Yeah, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, well, the tough thing is, so just so people understand what, what they're voting on with these judges. So if you're a circuit court judge, meaning you're the trial-level judge in the circuit court, court county or any of these other counties, you know, you're hearing, you know, depending on what division you're in, you're hearing cases, you know, ranging from anything from mechanics liens to personal injury cases to complex business litigation, you know, depending where you're at. But those are the trial judge level people who are on the ballot. 
and they run for six-year terms. So they, they run in a popular election, and if they're seated, if they win, then after six years, they have to run for retention, which is kind of an interesting concept. So what people see in, when they go in to vote is this whole list of people and whether they should be retained or not retained. And you're just voting yes or no, which is a rather interesting process. And if the judge gets 60%, they are retained. And, you know, people have a lot of issues with this process because, you know, historically over the last 50 years, I think there's about 15 judges, only 15 out of, you know, probably hundreds to thousands who have not been retained. And it's, it's, it's unique to happen. And, you know, there was a very very um, noteworthy situation with it with an Illinois Supreme court judge who was not retained because uh, big money was putting into putting into try to get him bounced out of his position and it was succeeded. So there was a lot of money that went into not having him retained. But when Tina or anyone else goes into the ballot, it's usually not that controversial, but you're given this big slate of people to say yes or no. And then the question is how the heck do I know whether this person should be retained or not? And I think the short answer is it's extremely difficult. You know, even as us lawyers, you know, we've had exposure to a lot of them. We know something about them. We know people that have been in front of them or have some experience with them, or we know by reputation or by party. But really, for the average person, it's real difficult to get information because if you go to these various websites, typically bar groups or attorney groups will simply say things like they're qualified, they're not qualified. They're highly qualified without giving you much information at all. But isn't so, that all I, we need, Mike? I, I, I got to stop you here. And, and Tina, you know, I know you're still listening, too. So if you have any other que- yeah. questions you want to add in. I'll, I'll hang up and continue listening. Oh, OK. Well, right. I, I wasn't trying to push Tina off there. But yes, I uh, appreciate that, Tina. Um, Mike, I guess and, and this is going to lead, I think, to what our next caller has to say, too. But Mike, isn't the idea that, look, as long as a judge is highly qualified, that's what we want. We want a wide range of opinions on benches and thought processes, as long as they do their due diligence, isn't that a benefit to the bench to have a wide range of thought? Well, sure. There's no doubt about that. Having a wide range of thought. It's the fact that from a voter's perspective, I don't think you have much insight into what their thought process is, what their performance has been. And you usually the bar groups and associations that rank judges, typically almost all of them are qualified or highly qualified. So, um, you know, and, and it's also an insider's game. So you're not getting perspective of the public or the litigants. So I think it's kind of a skewed perspective upon the qualifications of them. But beyond that sort of uh, numeric or, 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 or other rating, you're not really getting much insight into how they, perf- how they handle their courtroom, right. how they actually rule in cases. So it really is hard for any average citizen really to know, other than some bar group says they're, they're good to go to know much beyond them. I, I think that's troubling for some people. What do you think about that, John? I don't know. For me, I it doesn't bother me. I don't think I really want to know all that much about a judge, except that they are qualified to be there and haven't had gigantic controversies. I want to bring Jim on the line, too. Jim, you have some, some thoughts on this matter. Hi. Yeah, I'm along the same line. I'm finding it's hard distressing how politicized judicial races are, especially the Illinois Supreme Court. Do you think that's out of control, or is there anything to be done about the amount of advertising, the amount of money, uh, the amount of politicizing of these races? And, Jim, I'm going to add to that, even whether you support the governor or not, I do find it interesting that even 
our governor can donate a lot of money to a Supreme Court justice. Something about that just rubs me the wrong way, even though I know it's it's legal for him to do so. So those two thoughts, Mike, over to you. Yeah, another really interesting issue, because on the ballot, there's also going to be what Jim's alluding to is you have, besides those trial court judges we talked about uh, who have six years terms, they're Illinois appellate court judges. So there's five, five appellate court districts in the state of Illinois. And so those are extremely important positions because the Illinois appellate court will rule on, uh, oversee all the trial court's rulings. So, for instance, if a case goes to trial, somebody appeals, they're going to be deciding, you know, which way that case goes on appeal. Likewise, there may be other issues that come up during a case. A case gets dismissed for some reason or someone challenges the constitutionality of a law under the Illinois Constitution or the breadth of a law, et cetera, et cetera. So those appellate court decisions are very important. They're often written opinions that get a lot of attention. And so what Jim is referring to is those judges, you know, they get 10-year terms, mm-hmm. and then they go into the same thing. They go into this category of should they be retained. But what Jim's talking about, this current election, we have two or three contested Illinois, Illinois appellate court seats where, you know, you have candidates from the Republican Party against a candidate from the, from the Democratic Party. And what Jim is talking about is this election in particular, that court, and then we have the Illinois Supreme Court, John, and very similar. You get a 10-year term, and now we have some contested elections in addition to people just being retained. But Jim's issue is there's been put into these, these two levels of, of the court literally tens of millions of dollars. And so, you know, it raises a lot of questions. You know, certainly these groups that are donating tens of millions of dollars to get a judicial candidate put into the appellate court or the Illinois Supreme Court, they certainly believe that those candidates will be helpful to the policies that they pursue. You know, for instance, pro-business or pro-union, etc. Um, so clearly tells you, should tell you something about the candidates and their background. Uh, but then the other issue is, and I think probably Jim's talking about that, is once they get into office, after being put into office by all these donations, you know, how can they not be holding in some respect to those interests right. when, when they're making rulings, you know? Why don't we why don't we appoint Supreme Court justices just like the US Supreme Court does? Is it just what the Illinois Constitution says? Yeah, you're going by the Illinois Constitution, but you know, no matter what system you come up with, you're always going to be dealing with the same issues. If they're elected, people are saying, "Gee, the public doesn't know enough. They shouldn't be making these decisions." If they're appointed by some certain small group of lawyers or you know, elders or white people, then people have the same problems. You know, that's right. too politicized. I know. So, There's no perfect you know, answer. Yeah. But have you noticed, John, this this particular cycle, in particular, the Illinois appellate court and the Supreme Court ads? I mean, it's oh, really crazy. much beyond what we've seen in, in a lot of years. Yeah. I wanted to give Jim a chance to react to what you had to say. Jim, any thoughts about uh, our, our thoughts there? Yeah, I appreciate the insights. I agree with them. I just think it's, it seems out of control this year. Yeah, the I just... The amount of advertising seems insane. It does. I mean, it up and down the board, but especially for the justice. I, I just, I want conservative thinkers and I want liberal thinkers on, on our judicial systems. I didn't even like that they had the party names. I, I, I'm sure it's on every year and I just didn't notice it till this year, but something felt icky about that. All right, Jim, I appreciate your call, okay? Okay, thank you. We love the name Jim so much. We're going to another Jim, Mike. Uh, Jim, number right. two, although you're not number two in our hearts. Jim just, yeah, Jim two. What's up? 
Yes, I, I got a question. Um, you know, you have callers uh, wondering how they're supposed to vote or who who they should vote for for a judge, mm-hmm. when in reality, they really don't know anything about it, so they shouldn't cast a vote. Right, just leave no a blank. Way to know. Right. Um, and the judges, if they get elected, um, have a six-year term. Shouldn't the term be shorter? So maybe if somebody... Um, can actually see how these judges are voting or their demeanor. Um, I'm even wondering why some of these judges aren't even taped in the courtroom so people maybe can actually see, hey, look at how this guy's demeanor is, look at how he's um, actually making some decisions, and then if they want, they can go on and then take a look at how the judge is uh, voting and how this courtroom is conducted. Interesting. Hey, uh, Jim, I'm going to put you on hold really quickly, and Mike, you too. we got to take a break before the news. Mike, you got some time to digest that? Check on the football score where you are, and then we'll answer that after the break. Okay, Mike? Absolutely, John. I will do so. All right. We'll talk about should judges' terms be shorter? Should we know more about them before we vote? All great questions coming in, and we'll tackle those after the news coming up after this break on Let's Get Legal on WGN. Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Mike Leonard, what's the update on your is your nephew's game, right? John, I sad to report, I don't know what the what the score is right now. Still, <laughs> they were down one, and I can't give you any update. I know the listeners are dying in your. I know. Home. Have you heard cowbells in the distance? <laughs> I haven't heard any cowboys heard nothing, John, so okay. I, I have nothing to give you. All right. I want to get Jim back on because he patiently waited through the news. Jim, you were wondering about why maybe they don't have shorter terms for judges, uh, et cetera, right, Jim? Uh, yeah, shorter terms, and then why somebody is calling to ask how they should vote for a judge when they really can't because they know nothing about it, so yeah. it's almost a guesswork. In fairness to the caller, I think they're saying, where where can I find out more information? By the way, the Illinois State Bar Association's website does have a list of recommended or not recommended judges. Go to isba.org, and uh, you can find the list of their recommendations as well uh, and like their evaluations by lawyers around the area. So, Mike, what do you think? Longer terms for justices, shorter, what, 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 what works better? Is there an answer? Yeah, I think Jim makes some great points. I mean, first of all, he noted that you know these trial court judges have six-year terms. But let's not forget the Illinois Appellate Court judges and the Illinois Supreme Court judges have 10-year terms. So we would need a constitutional amendment to the Illinois Constitution to change that. Uh, but, but the 10-year terms, certainly a lot of people would argue those are very long. Um, someone could even argue that the trial court judges having six-year terms, that that's a long time. And, you know, Jim came up with a really good point, which is the question of a judge's demeanor. And, you know, again, someone who's voting um, would have to take that into account. But, but the jobs are so completely different. For the trial court judges who have these six-year terms, they're, they're hearing over the course of their six years hundreds to several thousand cases. They're, they're literally in court probably every day, not just hearing motion calls, but having trials, et cetera, et cetera. So it is certainly to the public and to the lawyers and the litigants extremely important the way they comport themselves, their demeanor in the courtroom. And there's very little that the public can find out about that. You know, if there's a, a big issue, you know, say say there's a sexual harassment claim or some claim of misconduct, we'll hear about that. But otherwise, you hear almost nothing about the courtroom demeanor of trial judges. You can find out very little about it. There's a couple interesting websites where I think one is called the robing room or the disrobing room where lawyers can go on there and anonymously make comments. Uh, but those, those are not filled up with, with a lot of insight, right? And then, you know, the other job 
um, which has the 10 year term, you know, the Illinois Supreme Court or Pell Court, that job's completely different. You know, you're not in a courtroom every day. You're the focus for those jobs is issuing written opinions, right? So those courts hear arguments with three judge panels in the Pell Court and seven judge panels in the Supreme Court, but they're not in the courtroom every day. So the demeanor of them is much less important. And really how you evaluate them is looking at these opinions issue, these written opinions over time. And, you know, again, who in the public has time to go research the written opinions of a given appellate court justice? If we're, if we're real with each other, you know, no one is doing that. And there's very little that gives you a summary of their written opinion. So right. I think some, some great questions by the caller. Yeah, Jim, my only thought about the longer terms, Jim, and this is just my opinion, is that for the exact reason that we don't know exactly what we're voting for and we don't want influence to weigh too heavily on these judges, the idea of a longer term leads to less turnover in the courts all the time, right? Like we vote for House representatives every two years and it feels like, boy, they're always just running for something. Whereas a senator gets six years, at least they have some time to kind of, in theory, not have to worry about every single vote being something that gets them thrown out of office or gets everyone up in arms or that they're motivated some way. They at least have some time to, to do their jobs, Jim. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, they're, they're, they're making um, life decisions for people. True. I mean, and, and some of them could, in a matter of six years, can become mentally ill. Yeah, you never know, <laughs> and right. Still be on the, and still be on the bench. Yeah. There's cases where some people have had medical problems with their brain, and they still haven't recused themselves and still were hearing cases. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Jim, thanks you know, for the call. I'm just yeah. saying, yeah. You, you know, it's, it's really tough, and there's people out there that are counting on these judges to make informed decisions, fair decisions, and, uh, you, you know, I don't know. It, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a tough thing. For sure. Jim, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. And, Mike, he, he brings up good points. There are a couple uh, they're great points, really great points. Um, and there are, there are a couple, you know, what we'd say limited safeguards. There is a judicial inquiry board. If you go to almost any court, from what I've seen, there's, a, there's this poster that tells you, you know, how you can complain about a judge. Do people do it? I don't know what the volume of complaints is by litigants and lawyers. Of course, I bet lawyers uh, are less anxious to do that and associate their name with a complaint about a judge unless it's egregious circumstances. Um, but that's one, you know, check on, on the judges that making complaints through that method. And we also have the Illinois ARDC, which, you know, governs the conduct of lawyers. But it's a great point. I mean, you know, for the most part, you know, they're, they're out, they are public proceedings. Someone could go, someone could literally go and sit in the judge's courtroom and try to get a sense of how they act towards people. But come on, you know, yeah, no the, the that, voters right? aren't going to do that, especially in COVID. Is it really feasible anymore? Probably not at all. Does it you bother know? you if someone leaves a blank, if they don't know one way or the other? No, I don't. I don't have a problem with it, but that, I think that points out to the fundamental problem that just shows you that the public feels like they can just throw up their hands. They either vote by party or they happen to have a little bit of insight from themselves or someone who's a lawyer and says, oh, this judge is great, this judge is horrible. But the fact that judges are so rarely not retained, you know, might raise the specter that is it really a, a legitimate, uh, you know, process when so it's, it takes so much to get a judge bounced off the bench. I mean, any judge listening out there was probably saying, I'm a rule against Leonard every time now. <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's, a legitimate, it's a legitimate question to I don't know. be raising. 
I don't know, Mike. I, I and I'm not obviously a lawyer, but something about the stability of the courts um, and the fact that you can't just you know a judge rules one or two ways and you don't like it, then we're all going to raise a campaign, raise a bunch of money, and get them out of there. I mean, judges are supposed to be making unpopular decisions sometimes, right? I mean, like that's that's part of the job, and and the idea that you're just going to throw them out because of one call that you think was controversial that they had to make and you you didn't like it and. Maybe you, someone else didn't like it. They have a bunch of money. They raise all this money to get someone out. That doesn't seem fair. No, I, I agree with you. And and the good thing is that that rarely happens. So right. there, there was the well-publicized thing, thing with the Illinois Supreme Court judge, Judge Kilbride, who there was a massive campaign to remove him. And it was it was based upon, you know, particular rulings. And there was also a well-publicized, you know, um, attempt to get rid of a judge who was at the trial court level based upon some allegations of when right. what he did when he was a prosecutor. And that actually, that worked. But in general, you know, your concerns um, are probably, you know, they're practical, but, you know, we've seen that very, very rarely are those kind of campaigns waged against judges. So, you know, you could certainly make the argument that six is a fair amount of time. You know, someone could certainly argue that four might be good. Uh, but I don't think we're changing anytime soon because it would require an Illinois constitutional amendment. So I think we're, we're stuck with those numbers. Um, and it's tough to to argue whether they've worked or not. That's that's the problem for the for the layperson out there. Everyone seems upset enough that it's probably the perfect system. <laughs> if everyone on both yeah, sides yeah. doesn't really like it all that much, it's probably the compromise. Um, a couple other texts. Chicago Bar Association has a list of judges up for rent- retention. There's injusticewatch.com. That from another texter gives a lot of information. And then the 630, again, pointing out about the Illinois State Bar Association surveying lawyers. I mean, tackle all that as you want. Maybe read a couple opinions if you want before you go in there. But if you don't really know, I, I think leaving it blank, if there's something un-American about that, you just aren't as informed about maybe some of the other races, that's okay. Mike, uh, we got a couple more minutes. Any uh, any cases that you want to talk about that you've, uh, you're have you working on here? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we were just talking about the fact that we had a, uh, a big sentencing hearing on Friday in federal court, which kind of think is a, is a great example of how, you know, the system is supposed to work. You know, the, the sentencing process in federal court really starts with either someone pleading guilty or being found guilty by a jury. And in the sentencing we had, the individual had been found you know, guilty by a jury, which then kicked off the, the sentencing process, which is, is somewhat elaborate. But, but in essence, you know, there's an interview and this big report prepared called a PSR. That's kind of the part of the pre-sentence investigation report in federal court, which really is kind of a thick a uh, little booklet about your client's life and history in an attempt to give the judge, you know, some insight and snapshot into their personal characteristics, their life, you know, anything from their employment to their childhood. And then, you know, probably the second most important step is the written briefs that both sides put together. You know, so in our case, this was a case for money laundering. The government was arguing that the defendant should get something like 12 or 14 or 15 years in federal prison. Uh, We did not agree with that. And, you know, what the judge had to consider was not only the written submissions, but then you go in and you argue it. So we had, you know, uh, probably three, three hours, three hours on this issue. What was the appropriate sentence, which is tough for a judge, you know, and in this case, the individual had no prior criminal history, had a family to support had a, a great history of gainful employment. You know, the offense was, for the most part, not a violent offense. And, um, you know, you have really disparate positions put before the court. The government's saying, hey, give them 12 or 14 or 15. 
throw away the key and us saying, no, judge, you know, appropriate sense is more like, you know, three years. And, you know, the judge thoughtfully came up with a, with a solution, which was seven years, which we think is too much. But, you know, under the circumstances, I think it was a well, very well-reasoned decision. And, you know, virtually half of what, what the, the government wanted. Yeah. So, yeah, so sometimes your wins are, are at sentencing, unfortunately. This is a tough question to answer in one minute, but I'm going to give you a shot for it. How hard is it when you have pled a case, you know, that this person should be found not guilty for it and the jury decides otherwise, and then the client wants to show remorse without admitting too much, right? Like it's a fine line. The the the, the person may want to plead for less of a sentence, but they spent the whole time in court arguing that they shouldn't be sentenced at all. Do you understand what I'm kind of getting at? Oh, that's John, that, that happens. That's a great point. It happens all the time because sometimes your client's position is that they believe they have a great, you know, group of issues on appeal for the appellate court to take up. So you don't want to undermine that by going to the sentencing hearing and say, gee, I did it. And I, t- I accept responsibility. When you have these, what you think are really substantial issues on appeal, you don't want to undermine that effort. On the other hand, um, it, it's quite common where defendants will, after a jury verdict, come into a sentencing hearing and accept responsibility and say, yeah, you know, I did do this. I did make these mistakes. And the court is allowed to consider the concept of what's called acceptance of responsibility. And in our case, our client did not speak to the court, which is, you know, the defendant's right not to do. And, and we certainly will be appealing that case. But you bring up a great idea, a great point, because oftentimes the struggle is, does the defendant sort of throw themselves at the mercy of the court and accept responsibility and get, you know, get favorable treatment from the judge for that or not do that at all because they're, they're concerned about the repercussions on appeal or possibly in, in a later trial. That's hard. That's hard to discuss. All right, Mike Leonard, I wish we had more time as always, but uh, we'll talk again soon, okay? John, and I'll definitely call you offline because I know you're dying to hear who won the fifth grade game. Uh, please okay? text me. Please text me for sure. All right. Leonard All right. Trial Take Lawyers care. is uh, where you go. Leonard at triallawyers.com, 312-815. Wait, what, Mike, do you have the number offhand you want people to call for your for your office? I do, John. I do. It's kind of like a better call Saul at 312-380-380. Six five five nine. Thanks, John. Yeah, three one two three eight zero six five five nine for Leonard Trial Lawyers.